This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 529 for October 12th, 2016. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. The word this week is fire bad. <laughs> Sorry, but it's true. Fire is bad, and we'll be talking more about that. But first, let me introduce my co-host, Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Hello, Glenn. I've got the fire in me. I've got the fire. You know, we didn't start the fire, but <laughs> I don't know. I feel bad Somebody laughing did. At, yeah, I feel bad laughing at it because we're going to record this and then someone's going to die from a Samsung fire or something. And we're going to be like, oh, Let's we're Let's go the, on the record and tell the people that we're as the, we're recording, no, one has no died. one's gotten killed yet no, or even horribly maimed. No, it's There's just been terrible. Some, some small injuries. Yeah, some burns and whatever. Actually, it's remarkable given the number of phones and the problems that are occurring and the risks of lithium ion. But we'll talk about that in a minute. I have follow-up from last week because uh, someone wrote me a very detailed explanation of what an f-stop was. And I, I don't think I've written them back, but I was like, you know, I know what an f-stop was. I wasn't articulate. <laughs> I could not say what it was. So I'm going to describe it so that everyone is clear because clearly what we said was totally ridiculous. Um, but also I actually went and just narrow, nailed down all the details so I can state this perfectly. So f-stop is confusing because on a regular camera that has an adjustable aperture, you have a lens that can be adjusted among different f-stops. The f-stops are typically marked in, in, like, in what are called full f-stop increments. And the numbers sometimes seem arbitrary. You'll be like, why is 1.8 go to 2.2, go to 2. Point whatever? It's because the increments are doubling or halving of the amount of light because it's based on the area of the aperture that's exposed. The f-stop is the ratio between the focal length of the lens and the current aperture. So if the lens is a 200 millimeter telephoto style or, or zoom lens, let's say, you know, 200 millimeter lens, and it's got a 15 millimeter aperture, that's expressed as f slash 4, 200 divided by 50. An f slash 1.8 on a new Apple iPhone 7 or 7 Plus with a 3.9 millimeter lens is a 2.2 millimeter opening because it's 3.99 millimeters divided by 1.8 gets you 2.2. It's a very tiny opening, but you can say F slash 1.8 lets in the same relative amount of light to the size of the focal length of the lens between two different lenses. So if you change lenses on a camera, you can compare the f-stop and know that you're letting in the same light relative between the two lenses. So because the f-stop tells you what the diameter is, it doesn't tell you how much light is let in because diameter is a one-dimensional property. You have to calculate the area, which is one-half of the diameter or the radius squared times pi. That tells you the full area of that opening. So when you're comparing f-stops, you're comparing how much light is left in, let in. So when we look at the f1.8 uh, opening on the new iPhone cameras versus the f2.2 opening on the old iPhone cameras, the 6S and series with the 12 megapixel camera. The 2.2 lets in not quite twice as much, but substantially, I think it's well over 50% as much light, even though you can't tell it just by the numbers. So whenever I need to know more about f-stops, I go and I look at a website to find all the numbers and the relative distances. And there's things like half f-stops and third f-stops that tell you, again, like a third as much or two-thirds as much light or, or more, you know, more or less, like a third less or a third more. So that is the story. An f-stop tells you, uh, gives you a basis of comparison to know how much light is being let in relative to the current setting. <sighs> okay. 
Yes, that's a good explanation. <laughs> but there's also the reason that it was brought up is it's weird because most cameras, uh, most cameras that aren't smartphone cameras have adjustable apertures. And yeah. it's sort of a historical weirdness that we're using all of these cameras that don't. I expect it's a mechanical thing typically. So I expect at some point there will be micro mechanical aperture controls that are good enough and fit and can kind of squeeze into a smartphone space. I don't know what all the, there's physical issues though. Like maybe you can't make them small enough and have the separation from the sensor because those sensor separations are so tiny now. Maybe it's, it'll be like razors and I'll just keep adding more lenses. It, it could be, I uh, will stick out five inches. You'll have this camera. It won't be a bulge. It'll be like a, poke out. It'll just like, be like a whole row of them on the back and they'll have different apertures and you'll just pick, shoot with the one you want. Well, that's possible too. I mean, this is the thing I was talking to before about the, uh, the light camera, uh, from this company called it's light.co I think. And they are going to have 16 lenses on this camera they're making. It'll produce a 50 something megapixel image. The lenses have three different focal lengths. There's like three sets of different focal length lenses and it's using computational photography to combine it all. So that's kind of wild, 16 lenses. So uh, we'll see more of that. We'll see more variation over time. Anyway, that's an F-stop. If anyone was confused and the people who were helping me try to understand this and explain it better, I have been photographing for 30 years. I just couldn't articulate it right because it's complicated. It's a ratio. It's like a ratio. Then you have to do more math after mm. you do the ratio as opposed to like, it's yeah. formula. You plug it in. But yeah, F-stops help you know how much light relative to other F-stops are let in on a sensor or film. Okay, that out of the way. That was our follow-up. Um, Susie, uh, new Macs? Are we going to get a new MacBook Pro soon? Is that what's going to happen? Gosh, I hope so. Um, there is a rumor that, um, well, it's it's true that Apple rescheduled its earnings call by a couple days. So there's a rumor that they would do that. Um, you know, people are like, why would they do that? Um, one of the possible explanations is that they want to squeeze in a special event that week to maybe Ooh. introduce new Macs or something else. Um, sometimes in the fall, they have a, an iPad event in October, but not always. Mm -hmm. So, but I don't know if, so the, the date they're talking about is um, the, the earnings call is now going to be on the 25th. And so the date they were talking about for uh, an event might be a couple days later on the 27th, but that's like two weeks out. So I feel like if that was a real possibility it might be confirmed like not officially confirmed but there might be you know rumors from from people who tend to find out that kind of stuff who have good sources and can say yep or nope or stuff something like that and uh <laughs> who would say yep or no oh i don't right. know sometimes that's people right. say that yep. and um yep. you know I, I talk to a lot of people huge words good words um and <laughs> that I, you know we haven't been hearing that this time. So, and they don't need to do an event for new Macs. They could, especially this MacBook Pro sounds like a, a big, um, a big change that they'd want to show it off, but they could do an event. They could brief individual um, writers and have those people break the story, or um, they could just, you know, put the, put the Macs in the store and let us all find out at the same time. We don't know, um, but they need to put out new Macs, they and new Macs. hopefully, I mean, Tim kind of said by the end of the year, right? So it's got to happen pretty soon. Yeah, they typically they don't like to release new Macs too late in the year because then if they want to sell them by Christmas, which is mm -hmm. even for the Pro series, they want to get stuff in, and you know, at least off in the calendar year, the fiscal year, I think ends the third week of January. 
So they like to book that revenue, but uh, people do get stuff as gifts or they have budget at the end of the year at a company or whatever, or they're treating themselves or they just, they're like, my computer died and I've been holding on. Let me get a new one. Uh, and I remember uh, several years ago when they released Mac minis and some other stuff in October, they had this like one time huge air freight charge uh, because they had air freight, <coughs> excuse me, a bazillion computers over to get them to the U.S. in time. Well, we'll see. I mean, it is. And they it already is. kind of missed the back to school yeah. window. Which... It's weird. I mean, I know they don't make them as much money, but they do. They seem to have an ongoing commitment to the Mac and Mac OS series. Good. It's a good release. There's a lot of weird things. Uh, oh, I didn't have that on our list. We got to talk about. Um, we'll talk about that later. But the uh, Mac OS and um, the purging is an issue. We got to talk about that maybe this week too. The way purgeable status um, happens there. Well, so new Macs. We'll see. We'll see. We'll find out soon. Soon enough. And uh, MacBook Pro, so maybe no headphone jack. Ah, ha, 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 ha. I kid myself. Um, there's a new USB-C standard extension where the USB implementer forum is uh, going to have an audio standard that will work over USB-C, which right now, I guess I didn't even realize there wasn't because I wasn't thinking about how that worked, um, but uh, there isn't. So this is a way that you could, again, make USB-C do everything despite problems with the standard being compatible in the right way everywhere um ostensibly this lets you have audio out as well so then you could have an analog out or have a USB-C connector for a set of headphones which no would... headphone jacks put headphone jacks on <clears throat> things might not please. have might not have one in the future releases maybe not yet the spec isn't done yet uh <sighs> Susie also third generation Apple TV it's gone it is out of the store Oh. Can't buy them I mean, I'm a little surprised they were still selling it, to be honest with you. Maybe they had inventory. I mean, it was cheaper. It was 50, not 50 bucks, 80 bucks. I can't remember what it cost. 100 bucks? It was some amount of money. I know it's been so long already. It was a lot less expensive. And I think they, you know, it's much less capable. But I wonder if they were just, I mean, it could literally have been clearing out inventory. They certainly weren't making new ones at this point. But I think this the signals they got the new thing out. It's a higher price point. And that's what it's going to be. I'm happier with the Apple TV. You know, the more I use it, the more these micro and major updates come out, even when they're not profound. It just kind of works right now. And I find the Siri remote. Tell me if this is your experience. I was using it a mm -hmm. bunch recently. I usually use the remote app on my phone since they updated that to be actually capable. But I just, you know, I've been lazy. I'm like, I don't want to get my phone down. It's charging. I'll grab the Siri remote. It is less annoying to me these days. I've gotten used to it, but I think they've improved the software sensing interface enough that I don't accidentally constantly jump to the wrong spot in video. I'm not mm -hmm. pressing it wrong. So I think it may be less sensitive now, or it's the Apple TV is much smarter about figuring out whether you meant to do something or not. Cause I am like 5% as annoyed with it as I was say six months ago. They did seem to make a change. I can't remember if it was with tvOS 10 or if slightly before. It might have been before. Before, I think, where right? If, yeah, where if you just brush the, the touch-sensitive area on the top of it, it wouldn't do anything until you kind of like click to sort of wake it up, and then you could do the brushing. So if you were just picking up the, the, TV, the remote or if it was sitting on your couch and it kind of like brushed up on your leg or something, you was like sitting right next to you, it wouldn't just automatically start jumping oh. around. <laughs> so that's gotten a lot better. Um, and then, yeah, it's, it does seem like it's a little bit easier. My son can use it now. I mean, he's kind of leveling up a lot cause he's about to turn five, but he can pick out his own thing now, which is sort of cool, but pretty scary as well. So maybe we're all just getting better at using it. It's trained um, us. It hasn't gotten better. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's, it's a little bit, I think we're meeting in the middle a little bit. Okay. Here's because a tip. That, oh. that change was a big deal. Um, it just, it not just, you know, 
jumping 20 minutes ahead in your video because you like moved the remote a little bit with your hand. Here's a tip. Something I learned last night, and you're, I hope you laugh at me. Laugh at me, please. Is okay. Uh, I uh, one of my, I was using Hulu. I just subscribed because we want to catch up on Adventure Time. I've never watched Adventure Time. And I hear it is the best show in the universe. So uh, my nine-year-old and I are like, oh, let's find something new to watch. We start watching it. It's totally insane. I love it. It's just, it just doesn't make any sense. And it's surreal. It makes Bullwinkle and Rocky seem um, you know, sensible and normal. And uh, anyway, so I got the Hulu app, which I haven't used in a while. It used to be crappier. It's now better, too. And it crashes. If something goes wrong, it crashes. And I'm like, oh, well, how do I – and I'm finding some – I go online. I'm like, how do I kill the app? It says press the home button twice. I'm like – What's the home button? I'm looking at the Siri remote. I have no idea. I finally have to go to Apple's site, and it's the monitor icon is what they call the home button. I literally had no idea. I had no idea that's what it was called. So the tip, folks, is if you have a Siri remote and an app crashes or you want to do the app switcher thing like you can do in iOS, you double press the thing that has a monitor icon on it, which is or TV icon on it, which is the home button. Why that's called the home button, I don't know. Because it always goes all the way back to the home screen. I know. Well, it's also if you press it, doesn't it turn on the monitor if it's not on or something? Or yeah, got uh, if you HDMI press and hold it, you'll get the little thing that says, "Do you want to sleep?" And if you yeah. sleep it, then it'll also turn off the TV. Yeah. So it says it uses uh, if you've got HDMI uh, CEC enabled, it'll do that. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't know that. Didn't know. Now I'm feel like so I was able to do that. Did That's the a good one. Double tap and then swipe over and then whoop, and killed the Hulu app. Relaunched it. It was great. But what's remarkable is I don't believe I've had to kill an app on my Apple TV since I got it last October, which is amazing. I have a couple times. It comes up now and then. They've but yeah, you can do me. the kind of swipe up thing like you can yeah. in iOS. Well, they've died on me, the but they die remote. and then they relaunch. But I haven't had to do a force kill until this moment. I think I've had a couple freeze up. It, it happens. Not not too often, though. Okay. Uh, we have and a... the other thing that oh, it yeah. started doing for me was n- there's, a, there's a handoff kind of continuity feature. I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, where I, I had... I was using the Siri remote. I was about to enter some text, I think, to search for a YouTube or maybe search for a Netflix thing. And you only need to enter a f- like a few letters to, to find. I, I knew I would only need to enter a few letters to find what I was looking for. So I didn't um, default to using the voice search or the voice dictation. Mm-hmm. I was just going to enter a few letters with the remote. And then my phone was sitting on the couch next to me and it buzzes. And I look down and it's like vibrating to say like, oh, I have a keyboard. You can use me. But it wasn't the remote app. I hadn't even launched that app on the phone yet. I just like moved into this this phone. So it wasn't the remote app offering it. It was purely like a continuity handoff thing. Where the phone oh. and the and the TV knew they were close oh, to, together yeah. and just offered to let me use the phone to enter text to the TV. Which somebody was nice. you know was it my friend David Lohr or Joe Rosenstiel? I forget had it do it repeated. No, it, was, it was David. He couldn't get it to stop doing mm. it. It was just like no, stop handing off, stop, stop. I've got the remote control <laughs> to like kill Bluetooth on the phone or something. Hands maybe. off. Uh, another uh, hey blast from the past. Uh, maybe another FBI Apple showdown. That'll be great. That'll be fun. Uh, Another locked phone situation, FBI. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem so far like it's escalating to that. And with the uh, end of the Obama administration, however you feel about that, coming to a close here, maybe much more difficult uh, in a lame duck administration to uh, after the elections, even before the elections. I have, a, I have an issue about people talking about this being the whole lame duck year. And I'm like, it's a lame, a lame duck after the elections happen. You can't give them the whole year. But 
uh, and things have happened this year. And the FBI and DOJ have done things this year. But I think it might be harder in the uh, quasi-interregnum to make something occur. But we'll see if there's a fight. We'll see what, you know, the next president, whoever that might be. <coughs> excuse me. Um, I don't know. We'll see if, um, excuse me, I got this cough. Yeah, so this story is about uh, another um, terror suspect. He is also dead, like the guy in San Bernardino. Um, he was he was killed in a you know shootout with authorities, um, and and this person uh, stabbed people. Oh oh yeah, stabbed people at uh, the mall in Minnesota, yeah. the big uh, mall of America. Oh yeah yeah. Um, and and they think he has ties to ISIS, and they have 780 gigabytes of data from his computer and his other devices. But they want to get in his iPhone to find more about you know who he's been talking to. So they have the iPhone. Um, it's probably not running iOS 10 because that's so new. It's probably running iOS 8 or 9. But they need to crack it, and we know that they have done that before. They cracked the iPhone 5C belonging to the San Bernardino shooter um, without Apple's help. They wanted Apple's help. Apple refused, and then they said, never mind, we cracked it without you. So this time they haven't even officially asked for Apple's help, but they did say you know, publicly that they need to get into this phone. So now it's kind of a wait and see to see if they're going to use the same method or, you know, um, firm that they used to crack it last time or if they're going to bring this back to Apple and we're going to have another showdown. Apple was not cooperative last time. I mean, there were stories about the handful of engineers at Apple that knew iOS security just being like, oh, we could just quit our jobs <laughs> if, <laughs> if, if, if it came to that. Um, if it was, you know, we had we're being forced to tell you, like, we'll just quit our jobs and yeah, stop we had doing the, this. We, that discussion was fascinating. It was like, could the U.S. government, you know, constitutionally or under some laws that they might, you know, say are secret laws, force people to stay in their job? Could they force a private company to continue to employ people? Could they force people who quit? Could they compel them or conscript them? Like that would, I mean, it's one thing if you're working at the company and the company says, do this or don't do this, right? Or the mm. government says, do this or don't do this while you're an employee. But if you quit, could they, that's uncharted territory, I believe, yeah. in peacetime. In, in wartime, sure, but I don't think we have laws that cover that. Yeah, it never got that far last time, but, you know, new Ooh, stakes, new phone, not. who knows? So, not. yeah, I mean, this is one of those things we'll keep an eye on. But nothing has really happened yet. Like, they didn't even mention Apple specifically, yeah. but, you know, it's an iPhone, so. Well, there's a lot more extreme things that can happen, too, so we'll see. Um, Samsung, before we get into the Samsung Fire issue, which is kind of a, I want to talk about because it's a Mac, uh, it's an Apple-related issue. Uh, people are interested in the details. Um Samsung and Apple, a lawsuit issues, $120 million patent judgment. It's been reinstated against Samsung about swipe to unlock, which in a bit of irony, Apple doesn't even use anymore. That's not what the law cares about. And then the other issue is the uh, jury decision about the design uh, aspects like stolen design uh, by of uh, you know elements is up in front of the Supreme Court. And uh, Supreme Court is rather confused about the instructions given to the jury. And uh, I think it was Anthony Kennedy was like, I would not have been able to follow what was, <laughs> what, a, what I was supposed to do here. I'm like, I'm like you and me both brother. So um, it's interesting how these, I, I feel, I always felt, and I think a lot of people felt these lawsuits were counterproductive by Apple. They seem to be trying to keep Samsung from wholesale copying. And now I don't know if Apple's thrown up its hands, but um, there was this discussion about the Google pixel. It's like, you know, how similar they are to iPhones and um, 
you know, is there just like this, uh, is there even a point in pursuing these suits anymore because there's just such a milieu of ideas? And Apple certainly has borrowed a lot of stuff from the Android uh, world and even from Windows Phone in the day, um, but they were more conceptual, I guess, rather than specific. And they're very careful to not, you know, re-implement things in exactly the same way, even from a design standpoint. Uh, notifications, I think, being the most notable borrowing from the Android world. But um, Susie, I mean, doesn't this seem like a, uh, despite the money involved, it seems like a colossal like waste of time and wrong focus. Um, and I don't feel like we're seeing Apple, I don't. I can't think the last time Apple's filed uh, a patent lawsuit now since the Samsung stuff all went to court. Yeah, these are kind of sad patents. The design patents in this case were for black rectangular round corner front face. <laughs> Similar mm. rectangular round corner front face plus the surrounding rim known as the bezel and a colorful grid of 16 icons. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, all the phones are like that now. Everything's a, a black rectangular corner, you know, a black rectangle with round corners. Sometimes they don't have round corners, but that's, yeah, these, it does seem like a pain in the butt. None of the the devices that were, that were sued over are for sale anymore. I mean, this original lawsuit is from 2012. So yeah. And then it was, you know, the poor jurors had to go through this whole thing and then they're asked to you know, come up with a, a number and then the, that number just gets changed over and over and over again. So yeah, this, this case seems like it's kind of just outgrown its usefulness, I think, as time has marched on. Um, and then the, the Supreme Court justices are asking about Volkswagen Beetles and stuff. So oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, I'm, I just think about the tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars in money spent on the suits. So like even the final yeah. judgments, like will it actually have been worth the time, the lost focus, like un uh, quantifiable measures, the yeah. executives, you know, executives testifying. And I don't know. I, yeah, it, I don't know if Apple needs the money. I don't know if having to pay this money is really going to punish Samsung because these are such big companies. So, I mean, the lawyers are definitely billing a lot and the lawyers are going to be the big winners. Yeah, it's when you have companies that have making billions of dollars of profit a year or much more, and they have a judgment of $100 million against them or even a half a billion. You're like, is that really – does that deter them? I mean, you get enough of those. They add up. There's something. But even then, it's like, well, what if you sold $50 billion worth of product and you had to pay $100 million in a patent lawsuit after years and you spend $100 million litigating? It's like, maybe that's the right trade-off? I don't know. I think it's counterproductive, but I I, I feel like that sort of – Maybe that's everyone's agreed on that now. I don't know. Um, it's just boring, is my point. It's I don't think the things that are being fought over, as you mentioned, are just so seemingly tedious and minor that it's um, uh, it seems like a leftover spat from the Steve Jobs days, as opposed to uh, that that Cook had picked up initially, and as opposed to something that's actually relevant in the current marketplace. Um, but speaking of the current marketplace, Susie. Samsung. Yes. Samsung. Oh my goodness. What so a mess. We should talk about this. I mean, you know, this is a this is the Macworld podcast. We talk about iOS and iPhones and iPads and Macs and the future of Apple and all that, but um this this is uh this is pretty shocking and stunning. And it's it's not like a cover up. It's not like there is great um it's more a lesson in like process management and damage control, like literal. And um, I'd put a, I've got a link we could put in the show notes. I did a quiz on Twitter today. I posted this uh, couple paragraphs from a news story 
And I blacked out the year and the people being quoted and a magazine writer who was from Macworld, actually, being quoted and uh, the companies involved. It was about a battery problem and suppliers and pushing too hard and not being sure what happened and batteries bursting into flames. And I said, OK, folks, can you identify uh, what year and what company? And people were all over the map. A few people got it. It was 1995. It was Apple. It was Sony supplied batteries. And Carrie Liu, the late, great Carrie Liu, used to work for my, right for Macworld, uh, was quoted in this New York Times article by John Markoff, who used to be at InfoWorld back in the day. It's been in the New York Times for many decades. And it was a story that I remember. It was Apple laptops burst into flames. It's like, well, you know, it became this big thing. It almost ruined the company. It's when Spindler was CEO. And uh, the deal was... It wasn't – these laptops hadn't shipped. It was in testing. It was in lab conditions. They discovered problems. But it was a big setback in terms of getting these models out and moving forward. Uh, and uh, – but the way – and it didn't leak. I believe the companies – I mean the companies announced it. Like information got out and this was something they talked about. Um, and then the problem was fixed. And But that was the beginning of the end for uh, Spindler. And then that led to, you know, ultimately – uh, to Steve Jobs returning to the company and um, taking over and bringing Apple back. But that was, wasn't was the low point, but it was a – I mean, I remember waking up. I used to subscribe to the New York Times, seeing this headline that's like, oh, my God, Apple's computers are bursting to flames. What is going to happen to this company whose products I love and I've been using for more than a decade and I rely on for all my graphic design and book production and what I do in my day-to-day -day life? What am I going to do? Um, low point. Yeah, it's a problem. So Samsung Note 7s were bursting into flames, some of them, and then Samsung recalled them. First, it was like a voluntary recall. They were like, bring it back and we'll exchange right. and, it, but not they didn't have replacements. Well, they didn't coordinate right. it appropriately with the uh, National Consumer uh, Safety, uh, uh, what is it, the um, blank, uh, consumer, I'm sorry. Yeah, they did eventually, but not safety. right away. They did, right, which was an issue because you're supposed to, when you have this kind of issue, they should have reported it with 24 hours, whatever. So that was problem one. Yeah, so then they some people were kind of slow to bring theirs back because at first they didn't have replacement Note 7s. They were what they wanted to put you in a different phone. So you'd bring back your Note 7 that hadn't blown up yet and they would say, "Okay, you can't have this one anymore. Now you got to have a Galaxy S7 Edge or whatever." And people were annoyed, so they were trying to hold on to theirs until the replacement Note 7s were, you know, plentiful and easy to get. But um, then some of the people who were getting the early Note 7s, those weren't safe either. Um, one caught on fire on a plane before it had taken off, and they had to evacuate the plane. And a couple more um, that were, you know, certified. There were ways to tell the battery icon was green. There was a black box on the back of the um, phone box that was supposed to say, like, this is a replacement phone. Like, we know this one is safe. Those weren't safe either. So... And Technically, that, and the story clear, kind of broke over the weekend. This has come up with the Southwest flight. The battery didn't mm -hmm. burst into flame, but it, started it did smoking. started smoking and it burned the carpet. So just technically, just to be within the scope, yeah. I heard, no, I just heard someone talking about this on a different podcast and had the same, it was like, a, you know, it's, I mean, it's equally terrifying to have a smoking object that's melting things or burning things on a Angry plane. Angry smoke, he called yeah. it. Whether or not there are flames literally coming out of it is producing enough heat to burn the carpet. That's still a problem. But I'm like, I yeah, mean. Yeah, he dropped it on the ground and, and then they left it there and it burned through the carpet all the way down charging. to like the subfloor of the yeah, plane. It wasn't yeah, it charging, wasn't plugged right? in that anything. Was it, was it was like, just oh, terrifying. hot. Yep. Yeah, now every time my phone gets hot because I am charging it or because, you know, I'm like updating a bunch of stuff or using it, I'm starting to get really freaked out by just, you know, 
normal instances of the phone getting warm. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so warm. Is it too warm? I'm, I can't tell. How warm is it supposed to be? So it's it's not good. Um, yeah, and then after the replacement ones started having problems, I guess they didn't say anything right away. So it really blew up over the weekend. Um, uh, sorry, no pun intended. Well, the story the, really exploded. <laughs> the, the story email. really grew over Cust- the weekend. Yeah, customer service responded to somebody with a replacement phone who is going back and forth and trying to get things sorted out to report it. And they accidentally forwarded a response internally. It was like, okay, how do we hold this guy off and keep things under? Wraps. He's like, okay, I'm going to the media now. Yeah. And that was that. And yeah, they yeah, sent him a text like meant to to not be sent to him. As of this morning, Tuesday, uh, they have suspended. They will not be making the Note Seven anymore. Shutting it down. Just no more replacements. Which, yeah, no more sales. It's off shelves. If you have one anywhere, they're like, power it down, stop using it, bring it in. Yeah, there's millions None of them. None of these are safe. They'll wind up in, in uh, you know, lesser developed countries. They'll wind up in the emerging markets because they'll be sold or given away or whatever. And there's, these could, this could be a downstream problem for uh, years to come, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, if the hit to Samsung's reputation has got to be enormous. I, I mean, I was reading the New York Times had a piece where they're talking to somebody who's like, I'm a Samsung, we're Samsung family, the whole family has blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, what are you going to do? You know, someone, this guy's father needed to get a phone. He's like, well, maybe we'll find a different, like they didn't say iPhone, but he's like, well, maybe we get a Pixel, maybe we do. It's just really going to be hard for Samsung to come back. This was a flagship phone. It's going to cost them potentially billions of dollars in like cost and loss sales. And if it turns out that there was any shenanigans about how this happened and they have liability, that's a whole other issue. We have no oh, evidence. Yeah. We, There's going to be so many lawsuits stemming from this. Yeah, this seems like mismanagement of a supply chain. So going back to that 1995 story, what was interesting about the Apple thing, it was lithium-ion batteries. They were pushing their supplier too hard. Sony agreed to like sort of push the limits of the technology. And the result was, you know, Sony didn't suffer from this really. It was a supply arrangement. So the question here with Samsung is it may be exactly the same thing. Is that uh, they work with third parties. They have some vertically integrated, you know, they make all kinds of stuff. They make the displays for and chips for other companies, including Apple, they do all this stuff. But they um, but they also uh, contract out certain kinds of technology. So there's an issue of like, uh, like with the airbag problem uh, with uh, Tan- uh, Tanaka, with, with the GM ignition issue, um, things like that, where there are people obviously, or the VW, you know, um, uh, uh, emissions thing, like how high up did it go? Who knew about this? Like when things went wrong, why did it not percolate up? Susie, have you ever had a lithium ion battery bulge and look freaky and scare you? No. Oh, I had this uh, MacBook a few years ago. I had one we'd had, I think it was an older one we had. We didn't use it as much because we'd gotten newer machines. And one day I look over there and the bottom of the case is like, you know, bulging out. I took it to the nearby Apple store and they took care of it. It hadn't exploded. It hadn't melted. It wasn't even hot, but something had gone wrong inside. It was slightly terrifying. I got it out of the house. Um, Yikes. I've got a couple links we can put in the show notes about, you know, the technology. Yeah, what do you do if you worry, are worried? Put it in water. There are a bunch of things. So there's a Battery University link that has specific advice about if you are in imminent danger, what you should do. And and um, I was under the impression, because I am not as smart as I'd like to be, <laughs> so lithium reacts violently. Lithium as an as a element reacts violently with water. And so well, the worst thing you can do apparently is put lithium in water. It can cause a huge problem. Right? Um, but that's 
only like pure lithium. Lithium ion batteries are like a catalyst. There's like lithium salts, they're catalysts or other elements or other things involved. So a lithium ion battery has relatively, I forget what the ratio is. It's made 6% lithium, something like that. The amount of lithium and the way it's uh, neutralized in the battery is low enough that the advice to airline uh, flight attendants, uh, the, the standard, the FAA advice is you douse it in water because they have water available. They also have fire extinguishers and other things, but water is an effective enough way to halt the uh, runaway chain reaction that's going on that's causing the heating uh, to happen, that that's the recommended advice. So again, if you're in a home or a business or a school and you see a phone start smoking, throw it in water because that's what you got. If you got an, you know, there's certain kinds, the um, Battery University article goes into the details of which kinds of fire extinguisher types are best and whatever. And, you know, cause there's, you know, fire extinguishers are labeled A, B, C, and they have different, whatever for different kinds. If you're in a lab, you'll have a fire extinguisher that might be one kind. And if you're in a home, they recommend you get these general purpose ones uh, that have to do with different kinds of, uh, of uh, chemical or uh, reactions that they can put out, they can suppress. Uh, so if you're concerned more generally, most people should not have to deal with a lithium ion battery fire and water is apparently sufficient even on an airplane. So that's probably your first line of defense for it. But the idea is that there's these various things inside the battery, these salts and catalysts and separators that try to prevent these runaway reactions where uh, uh, a specific area starts to heat up, the reaction occurs. And instead of being damped down and distributed, it gets hotter and hotter. Once it gets to a certain part, it starts to break down the layers between the separation, which then catalyzes, uh, probably use the wrong words, not catalyzed, but then causes additional reactions. And then you get something, it's not a nuclear meltdown, but it is effectively, you know, once it gets past a certain point, it goes into a runaway state and then kaboom. Um, but uh, as long as the batteries are well-made, those separating layers are supposed to dampen that down. So even if you have a hot spot in one layer, it should prevent it from spreading. So uh, lithium batteries, we know ex they, um, they start to exhaust over time and you can even have problems with the battery fails, but it's being um, damped down to some of the internal technology designed to prevent runaway reactions has just caused the battery to fail, which is fine. It won't charge anymore instead of, you know, smoking and catching on fire. Yeah, that would be preferable. I mean, I'd it's just like, it's, it makes you stop and think because like one of the, I think it, this wasn't a replacement phone, but one of the like first round of phones that blew up, like the guy had left it charging in his car oh, and he geez. came back oh, to yeah, find the... his car engulfed in flames. That's right. And it just made me think like, I mean, these, these items, like everything has one of these batteries in it now, you know? And like, even just a few years ago, I didn't have anything that I had to recharge. Like everything had, you know, just disposable batteries in it. And you could get rechargeable disposables. But you know what I mean? Like they were replaceable batteries. And now everything, the batteries in there, you can't see it. You don't know how many like life cycles it has. And they need to be charged so much that I'm in this routine of when I go to bed at night, there's like four or five devices <laughs> plugged in on the nightstand like next to me. So yeah, if any of that if any of that ever set on, got set on fire, I would be in big trouble. Well, I think it's testament to how well most of these things are made that this has not been a recurring issue, especially yeah. uh, because we know there's things like uh, recently a USB-C cable caused um, – the fellow at uh, 
So Benson Leung, if I'm remembering his name right, at Google, he's an engineer who has independently been testing USB-C cables. Oh, yeah, yeah. And posting reviews on Amazon. It's extremely useful. Um, like basically every cable that comes out, you can find a review. And I think due partly to his name and shame policy, I believe the USB-C uh, committee at the USB-C Implementers Forum has wound up making changes. They're going to add authentication to USB-C so that cables will have to, you know, in the future will have to be authorized because there's too many problems. There'll be other certification processes. So maybe independent, you know, I think Amazon has pulled cables, but he plugged in a USB-C cable and it actually fried his, uh, was it his Pixel laptop? I forget. It actually destroyed hardware because it didn't do the handshaking right. It was an inferior cable, you know, made cheaply uh, somewhere overseas outside the U.S. and not through any certification process. Um, and he plugged it in and it was like, oh, this thing can take, you know, 30 uh, watts. <laughs> you know, it's dead when it's supposed to have only taken, you know, five watts or whatever. Um, so uh, that kind of thing is terrifying when you think about battery technology. And I've been testing battery packs. Uh, I've just did another round uh few weeks ago, went up at macworld.com of portable USB-C equipped uh, battery packs. And some of them are pretty huge. Like one is 30,000 uh, milliampere, milliampere hours, M-A-H, uh, or about, I think it was 118, 120 watt hours. And it's kind of hurricane and it's a lot of energy in that, um, you know, it's equivalent of a couple laptop batteries uh, or more these days. Um, so people are walking around with these things and in general, the engineering has been clearly good enough that even with whatever problems are in the Note 7, it's only a handful of cases in which there's actually been smoldering and fire. So that's... That's true. But it's significant enough. So, you know, one, I don't know if you've read, I've been trying to find out if anyone has an explanation. It sounds like there's no clear one. One of them was, it seemed like they might have not left enough room. Literally, they designed it so tightly that the battery was being squeezed, which is bad. I don't know if that's going to hold up as the explanation when the you know final analysis is done. But uh, Yeah, to- I mean, it wasn't just a, a case of bad batteries, it seems like, because that's kind of what they were, what the replacements were supposed to be. Um, they had kind of blamed a part, and then the new ones were also having problems. So it seems like more likely that it was some kind of major design flaw, like you're saying. But we don't really know. Um, but we do know that if you have a Note 7, you're not supposed to use it anymore, and you're supposed to bring it back, and you're not going to get a replacement because they are just shutting the whole thing down for the time being. Bye-bye, Note 7. Well, I expect that Samsung, it's a diversified company. Uh, they'll learn from it. There's also, I think, uh, we're talking about this, um, there's this cultural issue that the chairman is still alive, uh, has not been seen in public, I think, for two years, is ill, and because of the like family, corporate, and social structure, uh, the son wasn't who's now in charge of the company. Ostensibly, hasn't been given uh, enough power to make all the decisions, and that may you know be something they have to work out in terms of corporate governance. And that could result obviously in lawsuits as well. Um, but it's a tricky thing when you're saying like did family structure and like you know country culture prevent a rapid response to something because of you know filial piety of deference and so forth. I don't know. It's, I mean, I'm not trying, it sounds like one of those things I'm, I'm trying to Korea explain, but I've read uh, analyses from people in Korea who are trying to explain to people not in Korea, this is why this seems so weird. In America, this might work in a different way, but here is how our corporations work. And these are deeply family, uh, you know, ingrained companies. And, um, you know, in the end, the first pass, the reason the company finally responded is a worker on an internal board said, you know, I don't want my bonus this year. I'm embarrassed about this. 
you know, make this fix. And everyone responded to that and said, holy cow, you're right. We're not approaching this the right way. That's very wow. different. Yeah, it's very different than you'd see in the U.S., I think. Uh, or, I mean, a worker might say that, but that's great. You're fired. And, um, <laughs> you know, get out right now. Security looks great. You're supposed to. Yes, you're right. Oh, my goodness. We're betraying our cor corporate culture. It would be nice to have more of that, um, even if the upper management process were bad. Uh, Susie, should we talk about a serious issue? The purge. The purge in Mac OS Sierra. Sure. Have you encountered this? The purgeable, purgeable uh, content issue? No. <laughs> the purgeable content issue. So I installed macOS Sierra on both my Macs. I've got a uh, MacBook, a 2015 MacBook. I've got a 2014, I think, 2015, well, 2014 model Mac Mini. And I'm tooling around for a while. And at some point, I like look at free storage space after a few days. And I'm like, oh, my God, what went wrong? My MacBook has 100 gigabytes more free storage. Uh, did something get deleted when I installed? I mean, it's not that efficient. And I start poking around. I'm asking questions. Some of the slacks I'm in on Twitter. And uh, so, folks, <laughs> I think I haven't gotten any Mac 911 email about it, but I'm sort of surprised. On Twitter, people were like, oh, my goodness. Mac OS Sierra doesn't just tell you how much storage is actually free. It tells you how much is potentially free, Susie. Oh, geez. <laughs> it's like, so, folks – Sierra has these options where you can dump content. You know, you can push stuff, um, older files that aren't in frequent use can get pushed to iCloud Drive and then be pulled back on demand. Uh, you know, there's, there's always iCloud Photo Library has had this optimized or full resolution image option, which you choose explicitly. But if it's optimized, it's only storing thumbnails locally and the full resolution images live in iCloud are synced from there. Uh, and there's uh, several other things too. So you can run, if you go to, um, actually, it's kind of an interesting thing. If you haven't done this yet, uh, dear listener, and you're curious, if you do about this Mac from the Apple menu and you click storage, um, that's changed slightly. It shows you a bit more information about what's going on in your drive, slightly more informative, but you can click a button there that says manage. There's other ways to get there as well. But you click manage and it brings up this new thing that's within system information recommendations, store in iCloud, optimize storage, empty trash, reduce clutter, a bunch of other things. It shows you like where waste, where storage is, uh, where stuff's wasted and where things are divided. So you can mm -hmm. look and uh, delete things you don't need. Like, so for instance, I have, um, one of the items is iOS files. So Susie, have you had this problem where your Mac winds up full of iTunes backups of your iOS devices? Yes. Yeah. It's a pain. So if you reuse this um, recommendation thing in system information or via the about menu, if you click iOS files, like I did not know until I'm just telling you this now, I have 15 gigabytes of old iOS backups on my machine, on my 512 gig uh, SSD that I didn't realize were there. These are backups from like a year ago. I'd made them mm -hmm. after I had to do some kind of restore or something like that. And I forgot they're there. Uh, so you forget about these things and Apple doesn't, uh, Mac OS doesn't purge them. So now, when you do get info or you have the status bar showing in the finder window, it will show you an amount. I'm going to look at mine for an experiment for uh, reference here. So I'm on my Mac mini, which has uh, both my Macs have 512 uh, gig drive. So this says my Mac mini says I have 80 gigabytes available. Now, if I do get information on my drive, do this in real time. So exciting. I know real time analysis here. Uh, so I do get info on my main boot drive. It says, you can see this. So this drive says available 80 gigabytes, 1.53 gigabytes purgeable. 
And that purgeable is the stuff that macOS thinks you could dump. On my other Mac, on my MacBook, the reason I have like 100 gigabytes that are purgeable and it shows like 180 gigabytes free on my drive, uh, on my computer, is because I uh, have so much iCloud library images that have been downloaded to that machine. Either I synced there or I was working on them or whatever. So I could purge basically all of iCloud libraries can be reloaded and that MacBook would have another 100 gigs free. So anyway, this has confused the heck out of people because it's um, it's new and it's not explained. And that's the story. Uh, our friend Jason Snell did a very detailed write-up at Six Colors about this. He's gone into deep dive about, um, he's written for us about optimized storage as well. He did, uh, did a deep dive into some stuff about optimized storage and purgeable backup. But um, uh, uh, Susie, this just seems very confusing to me. Like, shouldn't the amount of storage that you're told you have available be the actual amount of storage that you actually have available <laughs> on your computer? Yeah. I mean, like, I like that it's trying to help you find things to delete to find to get more space. Um, I also have space issues. I think, yeah, this computer here is only a 256, and this is my everyday computer. So I'm constantly having to go and delete old iTunes backups and stuff. And you kind of learn where to look, but there might be some some places that you haven't been looking. So yeah, just this little recommendations thing that pops up in system information is pretty convenient. It kind of reminds me of the, of the storage menu that they have in iOS in um, system preferences, general storage and iCloud usage, I think. And it'll show you what's eating up all the space on your iTunes device. And some of it, you know, if, if you have a bunch of stuff downloaded to Spotify, you're going to have to open Spotify and delete that from inside there. But if you have, you know, nine movies downloaded to your videos app, you can even take care of those from system preferences and delete them. And I'm noticing here in this Mac version that, yeah, if I wanted to, I could delete some of these old iTunes backups. Um, uh, it says I could get rid of some mail attachments and then download them. And that is something that I wouldn't have thought of, but that's pretty safe because it's not really getting iCloud involved. Like my mail attachments live on the exchange server that my company has. So I don't really need copies of those locally because if I needed one, I could search for it, find it on the server, download it again. And so it's, it's nice to have those suggestions. What I'm not into is having um, my computer manage it for me Ooh, so yes. I don't have any of the optimized <laughs> things, the automatic, you know, clutter reducing, empty trash automatically. None of that is turned on because I do want control over, um, you know, what is happening to my files. Um, and yeah, I, I, I just don't like iCloud. I don't like iCloud well, to, it's, to manage things for me. I would be happier with iCloud if I knew there was a way for me to separately back it up. Like if there were a way to map, like if I could say, okay, iCloud's great and iCloud integrates with the following hosted backup providers, or I could be syncing my iCloud to like some external drive, like a time machine thing where I always had a drive active or something. If there's any way to export that. Um, but I don't know if you saw this happened um, after Sierra release. It's now several days ago it happened. But uh, Josh Marshall, who's the editor of uh, Talking Points Memo, it's a political uh, site that goes back oh, many yeah, years. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did see that. Yeah, and so Josh wrote this thing. He's like, he was freaking out because he had all these, 
many, many gigabytes on his desktop and documents folders. He clicks synchronize document and desktops and stuff disappeared. He thinks it's gone. And it's actually slightly unclear to me. I don't think any of it was deleted, but I think it, it wasn't was, gone. It was moved to a, it, it, it copies like kind of your primary desktop. And then if you have other computers, it puts the files from those desktops like in a folder. But it's confusing in your when iCloud. it's, it's, like when it's yeah. in process, though, it looks like they're gone. So they actually yeah. can go away and come back. So some of it gets, it gets nested. But like if you're in the middle of it, instead of it telling you like we're moving this stuff or it's gone to some other part, he's searching his drive and it's not showing up as available. Well, um, he had too much. He had hundreds like He had so yeah, much on his desktop that when it was trying to sync it, it kind of like just farted How and lost it. How does he know it. that? How does he know? But yeah, yeah it's, um, I tell you, oh, so one of the other things that's useful. It was doing something in the background. He didn't know it was going to be doing, and then that I, process failed. So it was just a big old mess. Well, like he had to figure out what it was trying to do and then why it didn't do it. It's also, we've talked about my gigabit internet service a lot on this show. And, uh, we have, we so have talked about it. I had something happen the other day that's related to that. I'll tell you in a second, but it's, if you have, you know, gigabytes of data and you turn this on, if you've got a normal, like 25 megabit per second down five megabit per second up, uh, megabits per second up, uh, cable modem connection, something like that, which is pretty standard. People might have less and other people have, more, uh, you might have an incredibly long time that you're dealing with this sync happening without realizing it and no status and not knowing what's going on. So if you had gigabytes, he had tens of gigabytes or a hundred or something. It's an even bigger deal. I, the other day, was trying to test something for a reader. And they said, uh, you know, how can I be sure that all of my iCloud photo library images are downloaded to my Mac before I turn it off because I want to disable it and switch to Google Photos? So I'm like, well, it's sort of straightforward, but I'm going to test it. I turned off on my main computer where I have full resolution images of all my photos stored. I turned off iCloud photo library. I turned it back on and it needed to resync 115 gigabytes of information, not just resync. It looks like it uploaded all of it again, even though in the end it only, uh, it didn't actually occupy more storage because everything was already stored. And it forced me to upgrade from 200 gigabytes of iCloud storage to one terabyte because it couldn't do the sync apparently without having that extra storage. So I went through it all. It took a day or so to complete. When it was done, I then, you know how you get, you have the Apple will let you downgrade again. If you want the mm -hmm. money back, it says contact us and you click a link. It doesn't have an automatic process. It doesn't automatically refund you. You click a link. It takes you to a support site. You click a link there. I wound up in like iTunes support. I sent email through it, even though I don't know if it's the right place. iTunes has support? Yeah, there's a support email. You can go down through the support menu on the site and you can send them email. And I filed oh. a thing that said, I don't know if there's the right place. This is where the get your money back for prorated you know, service wound up. And they're like, we get back to you within two days. And I haven't heard. It's been days. I haven't heard. So I don't know if I'll ever hear back. And I, you know, one terabyte of iCloud storage is $10 a month. 200 gigabytes is, I think it's $3 a month. So maybe I'm out seven bucks for one month, but it's still kind of sucky. So the whole thing was awful. It's terrible though. They made you like upgrade to something that cost three times what you were paying for before. Because it estimated that the entire library would need to be uploaded. And I thought Apple used signatures. So it could check very quickly every image to see if the one on the server was it. But it uploaded the entire library again. And like I say, that was the same library. So in the end, I had a, I, I'm using 130 gigabytes of iCloud storage. And when it was done, I was using 130 gigabytes. But because my library was bigger than 70 gigabytes, it said, you got to upgrade. 
even though it didn't know that. It just didn't want me to get started, I think, and then find out there wasn't enough space. But oh. exactly. Um, but one more thing about- I hate iCloud. I'm never paying for iCloud. This is, Market. I will never pay for iCloud. They need to improve it. Uh, system information, by the way. So if you hold down the, uh, just, just a tip for folks. If, you hold, if you're in the Apple menu, any place, and you hold on the option key, you can select the About This Mac changes to system information. You can select it. It launches system information. And the management thing, the recommendations thing, is in window storage management. Not totally obvious. <laughs> so that's where it is, wow. folks. I know. So that's if you want to reach it directly. I mean, you can pick About This Mac and then the storage tab and hit manage. It's true. That, that may opens be easier. it too. That, that might um, be faster. One thing I found useful, this is something that I have a stored search for this. I have a smart uh, finder folder, whatever the hell you, sorry, whatever the heck you call that in um, using our uh, PG 13 language. Uh, because I sometimes want to find if I have like large files that are lingering. So you can create a smart folder in the finder that says something like find all files that are larger than 500 megabytes or something. And occasionally I'll look at that and I'll say, oh, there's that temp file or that, that wave file, audio file and you get rid of. This is now a feature inside of this management window. When it calculates, it sort of goes through your whole drive. One of the links is documents. And if you click on documents, it shows you all of your files from largest to smallest. So I'm just discovering I have a, uh, you know, one and a half gigabyte file I'd forgotten about that's the original wave file for uh, a podcast that's been edited where I don't need that. <laughs> like it's done. We're never going to go back and re-edit it. And I'm looking at this and it turns out I have like 20 or 30 gigabytes of uh, original wave uh, uncompressed audio files for podcasts that will never, ever need to go back to the source audio again. So at some point I have to clear that out. But right now, like I say, I've got 80 gigs free, so I'm good. Uh, one more story. You want to do one more? Before we finish, are we going? Yes. Listeners, listeners, bear with us. One more story. Um, I thought this was sort of interesting, and I, I, there's a, there's, I think it's ongoing, but um, Apple uh, over the summer talked about improving the App Store, Susie. I mean, making it a better experience for both uh, users and developers by clearing out apps that no longer run, that haven't been updated for a long time, basically, and when launched, they crash. In other cases, they were going to give developers 30 days uh, to make fixes or the app would be pulled. And with the number of items, is it in the millions now on the App Store? I've lost track. Is it like 2 million apps or something? It's huge. Uh, it's a lot. A lot. It's a lot. I'll, I'll go with that. Um, <laughs> I think it's millions. Um, but a lot of those, you know, you can. I'll be searching all the time. You do a search and it comes up and you're like, well, why is the first match an app that says ready for iOS 5 and hasn't been updated since 2011 or something? So Apple's trying to finally go and purge. Sorry, purge. It's all about purge those old apps. And um, they've also been apparently cracking down on uh, fake reviews and review uh, you know, purchases and things like that, low quality apps. Um, so this fellow who develops a uh, uh, this very useful Mac OS and iOS app that packages uh, uh, developer documentation, it's called Dash. Uh, people like it quite a lot. Um, he posts a blog entry that says, my developer account's been closed and I told I can't appeal and blah, blah, blah. And everyone's like, well, because for bad, you know, for fake reviews, I don't know what they're talking about. I only have two apps and this is that. Well, the story evolves <laughs> and Apple uncharacteristically talked to a bunch of outlets about um, the, and like gave specific detail that this developer had two different accounts that were linked together and the one had dashed the other was linked to a bunch of low-quality apps that had thousands of paid-for reviews and even some some proof that some reviews had been placed on competing apps to denigrate them. 
And then he comes back with an explanation like, oh, a few years ago, I gave one of my developer accounts to a relative and my credit card information. <laughs> like, uh, okay. And, but I told Apple that and they were trying to, they asked me to send a blog post and they were going to resolve it, but then they never got back to me. And then the next thing I know, this press thing, he recorded a phone call with Apple, um, which I pointed out might be illegal. It's illegal in weird circumstances, but he's in Romania. You can record calls across country lines. Maybe it's illegal in Romania to record calls outside the country without the other party's permission. I don't know. He posted it. And what I've seen widely from, uh, I haven't listened to it because I don't want to, it just seems invasive. Um, Marco Arment. Yeah, it does. I didn't listen to it either. Yeah, I just thought, you know, it's a business dispute. But uh, And I've read, so Marco Arment and uh, John Gruber and other people have listened to it and said, this doesn't really make Apple out to be the bad guys. Apple is trying to find an accommodation and the guy maybe doesn't want to agree to the specific language they want where he explains what's going on. And from what I can tell, it sounds like it's not just linked to, you know, he didn't just give this to a uh, relative, it's he's still his credit card is still linked on both accounts, and so we don't have the full yeah, story. The relative story, I didn't believe a hundred percent. Like, it's got to be somewhere in the middle. Like, it's not exactly what Apple is saying, it's not exactly what this guy is saying either. Yeah, something's not right. I mean, I think Apple did find, I don't think there's any dispute, and the guy doesn't dispute that the uh, that the review, this other account that's linked to his mm-hmm. had a terrible, um. Uh, you know, paid for reviews and and all this illegitimate behavior. It sounds like that is not in dispute. It's rather what his relationship is to it and whether Apple could just unlink the accounts, which, you know, a lot of Apple ID related stuff, developer and otherwise, is very inflexible. So maybe they can't unlink it. I don't know. Or maybe he'd have to abandon well, accounts. If, if, if one person has multiple accounts and some of them are involved in review fraud and app store review fraud, which it is in Apple's best interest to, you know, fight. Um, I, I just feel like the chances of that fraud benefiting all the accounts is pretty great. You know, like I don't know why you would be like, well, I've got this one app that's doing good and we're going to keep that separate and not do any monkey business, but then we'll, you know, we'll try to game the ratings for these other ones. Even if it wasn't the same person doing it, like I you know, I don't know. It just seems really shady. I know something's not right and it's given that his first post he's like, "Oh, you know, after it's like, yeah, well, I remembered now." And you're like, "Oh, yeah. so I don't want to cast any aspersions on somebody, but I think the, you know, he was uh, summoning developer uh, anger and people were like, oh, Apple made another arbitrary decision from as much as we can tell. I wonder if we'll ever find out what's going on. And now, you know, that Marco Arment's response, uh, you know, disclosure, I used to work for Marco, so that I don't have him for years. So, but I'd always like to say, you know, he used to be my boss, but uh, I thought Marco's response was, uh, you know, I think he's, his was, it's good that developers rallied because Apple often makes arbitrary decisions. In this case, maybe Apple made the right decision uh, because of what we know. And that's cool, you know. Like it's not fantastic what what, what went down, but um, he still felt like it was appropriate for people to want to know what went on because so often the process is opaque. So maybe it's a good sign Apple released as much information uh, as they did. But what an ugly little situation. Um, Do you think it's strange that Apple just like how Apple released this information? Yeah, I found it weird. They didn't. I mean, it was over a weekend, so I know IDG. You've got folks on. On call, but I don't know if we have a. I mean, I'm sort of a security point person, and you, you know, you're the press point person. I don't know if, I mean, I think uh, uh, they will go to certain things, certain people who are developer oriented, which Macworld is not. You know, we're right, graphic yeah. design and 
consumer and whatever. Um, and it also people, you know, they're sending out email on Sunday night at 10 p.m. Or I mean, it's kind of Phil Schiller got involved and sent emails out. And um, but you know, Jim Dalrymple and Marco Arman and uh, I don't think Marco got the statement directly, but uh, John Gruber and a few other people, they're all on the. They write for a bunch of people, but also developers are certainly a part of their audience. Mm -hmm. um, but the communication, I thought, was a little uh, – it was more direct than I've heard from Apple where they said, this is what happened. They violated the rules, and we took action, and we're trying to clarify it. You're like, whoa, okay. I mean, it seems a, it, it seems a little bit like doctor-patient confidentiality. I like, if it was feeling. me, I would be really annoyed that they were, like, telling my business. And then also, I mean, like, I mean, Jim called it proof, and it's not proof. No, it's it's just statement. It's just Apple's side of the story. But I also, I think when he went public with his part, I think Apple felt like they have to assuage developers into not thinking that this is an arbitrary situation. Then the guy went public with more of the story, and they're like, all right, now it's totally murky, and now we'll probably never know the full extent of what went it's on. Too bad Apple doesn't like talk to you know like most companies have a blog and they would put this on their own yeah, blog. Yeah. And Apple puts out press releases, but they don't communicate. I mean, they'll communicate to people kind of one on one. So it makes sense that they did it this way. But this situation made me really wish that Apple had a blog. Yeah, I got to also think there's going to be a situation uh, where. Um, Apple's going to say in the future they're going to change the script, which is like I need your uh, statement, which I need you know permission to record my end of the call, including you stating that you are not recording your end of the call for release and you will not release it. We will continue, you know, we will retain this copy for ourselves and will not release it unless you violate this agreement. I bet like every call from Apple is going to be like that now with developers because mm -hmm. this guy recorded and released it. Uh, it's one thing if you have a company that's engaged in, um, you know, illegal or um, you know, non-consumer activity where you're doing a social good. I, I, I think uh, John Gruber stated this and I have to agree. It sounds like the person, you know, uh, shot themselves in the foot a bit by, releasing a tape that app that was clearly intended to be private business communication that the other party hadn't consented to. Um, if that were in the United States, in some States, if you're recording over state lines, it would be illegal and, you know, Apple or a, another party could pursue it. Um, but because he's a different country, not. So it's just kind of, the whole thing is a little ugly. Um, but I think it's worth talking about because we have had issues in the past where Apple seems to be taking arbitrary action. And only after there's a stink, does Apple get involved and say, Oh no, no, wait, wait, that was all a mistake. We're sorry. You know, it's all cool. Just have to get this one thing fixed. Like this case is like, Nope, this was uh, we think this is terrible. And here's why. Another thing that might help is they could go through the roles and kind of send, let people know if their developer account is really um, you know, like a, an island in Apple's eyes or if it is actually linked because so he says he didn't know Apple had, you know, linked these accounts, but it kind of sounded like it made a little bit of sense for Apple to link these accounts because they were being paid for with the same credit card. And then um, when you have a developer account, you can register test devices to your account. So when you put beta software on them, Apple kind of knows that these devices are being used by you as, you know, in the purpose of running betas. And and so he said that he was, uh, he, he'd use his, his credit card to, to open this other developer account for, you know, a relative, allegedly, and then had given this relative old test devices that he wasn't using anymore. So Apple kind of had two two reasons to think to link these accounts. There were it was they were using the same devices 
um, and and the same credit card. So it might be useful for Apple to be a little more transparent about that and let the developers know, look, we, in our eyes, you have four accounts. And if the developer is only, you know, really in control of like one or two of those accounts, they might want to figure out a way to unlink them or, you know, at least be more on top of monitoring them. Because he said that, you know, Apple was sending notices to the other account that was, you know, acting badly. And he claims he didn't know about it because he was only (laughs) using this one account for Dash. So that might, that might help prevent some of this. If Apple could sort of do a little audit and it's in its systems and say like, Hey, each developer, like this is how many accounts we think you have. And then if there's disagreements about that, we can get them out of the way. I tend to agree. Uh, When I uh, bought the magazine app and sort of, intellectual property from Marco Arment a couple of years ago, uh, or actually more than that, I think it was 2013, I guess is when I bought it. Uh, it was very complicated because he had uh, the app program lets you, or developer program lets you have individual and business accounts. So I believe you could only convert one direction, individual to business, and you get a different way in which it's set up. So Marco converted an account, I think, to business, if I'm remembering right. Then he was able to transfer that to a new entity, which was a business entity I created. So it was entirely out of his hands. Like it was no longer on his books, no longer was connected to him, but it was a little bit, um, and we pulled it, we made it happen, but it was a little complicated. So I still, I think if you have a business account and you have multiple developer accounts, as I was saying earlier, I'm not sure their systems are flexible enough to let you split them. And then it's like the Apple ID problem. You have two Apple IDs. They're like, Oh, we can't help you. That's way too complicated. You're using an Apple ID there too. I I feel like they have to, I, I feel like they have to figure out something transition system for Apple ID. Speaking of Apple ID, one last thing, uh, just quickly for listeners who are having this problem. I wrote a couple more things. I think I may have mentioned last week, but just check out if you're having issues with two-factor and two-step authentication and confusion, please go see these columns. One was kind of a help column or one was a, a, a security column about, okay, what's the difference here? Because you, if you want to use watch unlock, you have to be using two-factor. And some people were using this older method that Apple labeled two-step, even though it's a kind of two-factor authentication, but Apple lab- labels its current system two-factor, even though that's a generic term. Um, but the key thing is that I found in communicating this and talking to people who are still confused is what Apple calls two-step can only be turned on at appleid.apple.com. What Apple calls two-factor can only be turned on within iOS and Mac OS. So if you're trying to switch, go to appleid.apple.com, see what it says you have turned on there. If it says two-step, turn it off at the website. Then leave the website, go to an iOS device or a macOS device into the iCloud preference pane or settings and follow the prompts for security and then enable two-factor there. At that point, when you go back to the Apple ID website, you can add app-specific passwords for calendar programs and contacts and the like, uh, and uh, you'll be all set. And you can administer two-step from there at that, or two-factor, sorry, two-factor from the website once it's enabled within iOS and macOS. The other thing is I was talking to Kirk McElhern, who our iTunes guy, we talked to you last week, and I realized one of the remaining problems 
reason he didn't convert to two-factor uh, was he used to need lots of app-specific passwords for services that Apple didn't have integrated, and that included FaceTime and iMessage. I'd completely forgotten that. The new two-factor method, you only need to create these app-specific passwords at the Apple ID website for non-Apple calendar contacts and email software. And my recollection is, and we tested this in a couple cases, Everything else, Apple now has integrated. So FaceTime and iMessage and so forth, you don't have to go back through and create these app-specific passwords. Um, Kurt tried to switch after uh, he and I talked about it, and everything went kerblooey, and Apple has no explanation as to why, so he's turned it all off again. So your mileage may vary. Uh, I know, yeah, I guy. haven't even tried to make the unlock your Mac with your Apple Watch thing oh work because it's just, you know, I'm going to have to change it all. And, change it all. Oh, and the one other thing is... It doesn't seem like the, the payoff is enough to go through all that hassle. <laughs> well, the other thing is this Apple ID-related issue. There's a second column, which is about a related problem that folks found, my friends John and Darth, at Darth on Twitter. Uh, they, Love um, I think Darth. I talk, Love talk, you, Darth. <clears throat> I mean, we talked about this before, but I'll mention it one more time, is if you were using the feature in Mac OS, or what was OS ten at the time, that let you log into your Macintosh using your iCloud password and ID, Apple stopped supporting that in 10.11.4 version of El Capitan. So if you still had it enabled, it would keep working. You could no longer turn it on starting with that release. I remember that setting. Well, I'd forgotten about it, and then I went to find it, and I thought I was hallucinating because I couldn't find it. It used to be in the change password setting, and there was an option when you installed, and maybe not upgraded, but when you installed uh, OS X from scratch or were setting up a new Mac. Uh, and so I find I found when I can found a lot of older documentation, but they removed it because I think it's there's a security risk, there's a two factor issue, whatever. So if you make any changes to your two step, two factor, whatever, uh, if you're using two step rather, you want to turn it off and then enable something else. This disables your ability to do that same account login, like single sign on is sometimes what that kind of thing is called, where you have one sign on that works in different locations for different services. Um, this is a feature that's supposed to be in the Apple TV also for your all your cable TV subscriptions. But uh, so Apple has disabled that. So I'm hearing from people who they had that turned on and they make a change. So my friends John and Darth did that. They went to turn on two-factor for their Apple Watch and were told, hey, you have to change your Mac OS password too. They're like, oh, for crying out loud. So that's one circumstance. But other people have told me they were not doing that. They were making some other change either at appleid.apple.com or somewhere, and they were suddenly told, you have to change your login password. You can no longer use your iCloud login here. So you may get that screen capture if you're set up with that. Their screen capture, I'm sorry. Dialog box if you're set up with that. And uh, that's the explanation. That's no longer supported. They grandfathered it, but they might be killing off grandpa. <laughs> Don't kill grandpa. Uh, love grandpa. Um, and I think that's probably all the time we have for this chat. Right? <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> on that note. Don't kill grandpa. Sleep well, everybody. Yeah, remember, don't, when you go back in time, do not sleep with your grandmother or grandfather. Do not do not kill your grandfather or grandmother. This Podcast is very important. Just took a weird turn. Well, I, you know, time travel, you got to keep people from changing the past. They could step on a butterfly, they could kill their own grandpa. It's, uh, Look, we've been with you for 528 episodes. It's time you knew the truth. That's like the truth. Is, if you made it this far in this episode, time travel is dangerous. Time travel is dangerous and real. Do don't not pay for iCloud. Don't kill your grandpa. Don't step on that butterfly. Yeah. Peace out. Uh, so, folks, uh, this very surreal end of the episode. You can always find us and find out if we're still 
still mentally well uh, by emailing us podcast at macworld.com. Some van with an Apple logo is going to pull up and just <laughs> snatch us both off. Oh the my street. gosh. Ew, ew. Uh, Susie, <laughs> great to talk to you and finish on a surreal note, as always. <laughs> Thanks, Glenn. A uh, pleasure. And uh, I've been Glenn Fleischman. I believe I remain. So we'll find out next week. This has been episode 529 of the Macworld podcast for October 12th, 2016. Don't kill your grandpa. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>